0: We're turning back to the passage that we've been considering for some time in the, in the Sunday morning services from Hebrews chapter 1, and uh, if you haven't been here for the Sunday morning services, we've been going through the first three verses of Hebrews, and I kind of got stuck this morning, I, only, I didn't have much more to go over in my notes, but I know the, the tendency when I get going on something, and I there were a few things that kind of got me going this morning, that I can look down and see just a few paragraphs, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's only going to be a few more minutes. And so uh, I actually inquired as to how long I preached this morning, and I'm kind of glad that I didn't uh, to go into the last bit of the, the information that I had under this point, so we put it off till tonight. So in many ways, this is going to be... Uh, just the culmination or the conclusion of what we were considering this morning and then also um, a few other thoughts that I have. So we'll just read the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 1 and then we'll ask the Lord to bless our time together. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Amen. As we continue to have the word open before us, let's bow in a brief word of prayer and ask the Lord for his help tonight. Father, we come to thee now at the all-important time of the service as we open the scriptures and declare, thus saith the Lord. Father, we're thankful for this great theme that we've been considering as to why Christ is so special because of who he is and because of what He has done. And Father, we pray that as we consider uh, the the last few thoughts concerning Christ as the Creator, that You would help us, Lord, remember us tonight in all of our need. And Father, we pray that these, these considerations would be practical, that we would see the need to understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God, and that Christ created all things by the word of his power. Lord, we know that this is under attack. It's always under attack. And yet, Father, we're thankful that the same one who spoke the worlds into being took to himself human flesh, condescended, came into a world that broke his law and willfully and for the joy set before him went to the cross for the sins of his people. And so, Father, we're thankful that we serve such a Savior and that we're joined to him, and and therefore accepted before thee. And so, Father, as we consider these thoughts tonight, we pray that Christ would be exalted, keep us back from saying anything that would detract from the Lord's glory, and we pray that our own hearts would be thrilled and encouraged as we consider thy word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Whenever I talk, about the subject of the Lord's return. I always like to quote Dr. Allison, uh, the primary uh, professor that I had when I was in seminary. He is now with the Lord. But in dealing with the thoughts of the Lord's return and eschatology, he always encouraged us to interpret the unclear passages in light of the clear He said, we we do this in every other discipline of theology. We never go to the unclear passages first and use those as the basis or the foundation of the doctrine. One of the reasons why the Lord gave us the New Testament and specifically gave us the epistles was to take some of the doctrines that maybe were unclear in the Old Testament and... In, in clear language, use the apostles, men like Peter and Paul and James, to take these great doctrines that maybe were only seen in types and shadows and as they pertained to, to different things in the law, and to make it clear. And so, on almost every other aspect of theology, whether you're dealing with salvation or sin, uh, whatever it may be, the the natural... A way of hermeneutic is to always go to the clear passages. And then on the basis of the clear, you interpret the unclear. Well, when it comes to the to the Lord's return, or what we often refer to as eschatology, uh, for some reason, people lose that discipline. They begin by going to passages that are more spiritual in nature. They, they go to Revelation or they go to Ezekiel. They go to passages that maybe may not even be pertaining to Christ's return, and then tend to ram their own thoughts that they derive from the unclear passages down the throat of those that are clear. And I say specifically, for some reason, when it comes to the Lord's return, if you go to hear a conference, go to a conference on the Lord's return, They'll spend a lot of time in Revelation, they'll spend a lot of time in Zechariah, they'll spend a lot of time in Ezekiel, but they tend to overlook the very places that we go to form the rest of our doctrines, which is the epistles. I say all that to say that whenever I speak of the Lord's return, there are three main passages that I like to turn people to, mainly because they are joined together. Uh, the, The language that is used in these three passages, in the epistles, uh, is similar. And therefore, my take on, on these passages is, if the language is similar, and they're speaking of different events, and the language itself connects these passages, then it's not hard to understand that, in many ways, these events happen around the same time, or at the same time. And those passages for our 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we often refer to that as the rapture. Uh, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Paul gives that exhortation to those who are grieving over loved ones that have already died. And he's encouraging them that we are going to be reconciled, because the Lord will bring them with him. But he refers to that uh, that event as happening happening when the trumpet is sounding, and uh, later in 1 Thessalonians 5, he refers to that event as a thief in the night. The other passage, one of the other passages I like to go to is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 deals with the Lord's return, but it's dealing specifically with when... We will get our new body. For this corruptible shall put on incorruption, and this mortal shall put on immortality, and then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death shall be swallowed up in victory. But the same language is used in First Corinthians chapter 15. The trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. New bodies, death is swallowed up in victory, same language. It's when the trumpet's sounding. The third passage is the passage that we read from a little while ago. And this is one of the reasons why I wanted to read from 2 Peter chapter 3. Because 2 Peter chapter 3 is often a passage that we go to to uh, comment on the Lord's return. Because there are things mentioned in this chapter that uh, Peter says are going to happen in the future. Um, The chapter begins by him saying that he wants to stir up their minds by way of remembrance. And this is really the job of every pastor, of every teacher. Uh, There's no new doctrines that we continue to introduce. The responsibility of the man behind the pulpit is to seek out the old paths, the doctrines that the church has studied and has been blessed with uh, for centuries. Uh, There's no new doctrine. uh, Peter understood that, that that was his responsibility, is to stir up the mind by way of remembrance. The interesting thing is that it's not just his words that he is referring to when he talks about the Lord's return, because in verse 2, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of our Lord and Savior. The doctrines that you find so clearly expounded in the New Testament, here it applies to the return of Christ, but you can, you can say that this is regarding any doctrine, and specifically the doctrines of salvation, and as they apply to Christ, are found in the Old Testament as well. The Old Testament is a, a section of the Word of God that, that, that preaches Christ as well. Christ is there. When Christ was on the road to Emmaus, He Began at Moses and he showed unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That was only the Old Testament. We didn't, he didn't have the New Testament. And so there was a Bible study there that Christ uh, had with the two on the road to Emmaus where he showed them in all of the Old Testament the things concerning himself. So it shouldn't surprise us then that on any doctrine relating to the person and work of Christ that you find Old Testament proof as well as New Testament proof. And and Peter makes it very clear that that the command or that the exhortation he is about to give them concerning the last times, it isn't just something that that they were speaking about, but the Old Testament scriptures as well. And specifically verse 3, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. Now, Peter mentions here that The commandment wasn't just from him as an apostle, but he says the commandment of us, the apostles, implying that the warning was being sounded by more than one apostle. And you can go to Paul's writings, where he was talking about those that were entering into the church, that were doing damage to the church. You can go to Jude. Jude wanted to write of the common salvation, but... He was moved by the Spirit of God instead to pen an epistle to encourage them to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints because of these ungodly men that were coming into the church. Peter was writing that they would come. Jude was writing that they're here. That's how quickly these ungodly men came into the church. And, and much of the language that you find in Second Peter chapter 3 is is synonymous, or it sounds very similar to the language that you'll find in the epistle of Jude. And, and so they were warning that these men would come. And the reason why I'm focusing on 2 Peter chapter 3, well, as I started this message, it is the last of those main sections that joins with the other two, the 1 Corinthians 15 and the 1 Thessalonians 4 passage, because here also, as we read... Down in verse 10, this day of judgment when the Lord will judge sin and the creation of the new heavens and the new earth is also said to be the day of the Lord that comes like a thief in the night. So if the language is the same, there shouldn't be any doubt in the minds of people that these three events happen at the same time. And so if, if you allow the clear passages to speak for themselves I think you can can put together a a pretty sound eschatology just simply based upon what the Gospels and the Epistles say. But in in reference to what we've been considering from Hebrews chapter 1, I wanted to turn to this passage because in this passage, Peter is warning of those that would come that would be scoffers who were evil men. They were evil men. And the attack that they would bring... Against the church was in, is, is, said, is stated in verse 4, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Now, at, at first glance, you may say, well, here they're actually doubting the, the, the return of the Lord. And in a certain sense, that is what they're doing. They're, they're saying, you keep saying... That the Lord promises that he's coming again. But there are, there are a number of things that take place in connection with the Lord's return. We considered some of them already. 1 Thessalonians 4. That we which are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord and those saints that have already died in the air. Is that what's in focus here? Well, no, that's not what's in focus here. We considered from First Thessalon- Corinthians 15 that we will receive a new body and death is swallowed up in victory. Is that what they're attacking here? No, that's not what they're attacking here. Peter says what they're attacking here. He's, they say, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. They're saying, in connection to the return of Christ, that the aspect of His return that they're attacking is that Christ is coming again to judge sin. Christ is coming again to bring judgment upon the ungodly. That is an aspect of His return. It's a glorious event for His people. And the older that we get, and the closer that we get to seeing the Lord face to face, nothing thrills our hearts more than that moment when we will pass and be in the presence of the Lord and be with Christ forever. So it's joy. There's joy, but there's also an aspect of of Christ coming to judge sin. And that's what's being focused upon here. But what I want you to consider in connection with what we were thinking about today and connection with with Hebrews chapter 1 in our study in Hebrews, we've been spending time on Sunday morning considering who Christ is. And one of the aspects, as we've been considering today, is that He is the Creator and we've been spending a lot of time dealing with the attacks of the ungodly against the doctrine of the creation, the beginning of, of the universe. We spent some time dealing with different theories that the ungodly, mainly the Big Bang, and, and how they thought that the universe began. But what I want you to see here is that the, the attack is also connected to creation, it's not by coincidence that they are referring to the beginning of time and saying nothing has, nothing has changed since the beginning of creation. These are ungodly men. These are men who are rejecting the doctrine that Christ is coming again to judge sin. And in in so doing what they're doing is they are denying what the scripture says. They're denying what God's Messengers have said, the prophets and the apostles, warning that there's coming a day of judgment. The day of judgment's going to come. These ungodly men are saying, well, where is the day? Everything's continued ever since man's been around. He's just continued just like every other day. Man wakes up, nothing's ever... God has never intervened in the past. He's never, he's never judged sin before. All things continue as they were. From the beginning of the creation. The rejection of the creation of Christ, the creation of of the universe, speaking the world into being, carries with it other attacks. And you'll find that one of the main reasons why men and women reject the biblical account of creation is because they don't want to have the accountability to God. God. Two aspects that we considered today that prove that the Lord owns people is creation and redemption. The created does not have the right to dictate the terms to the creator. And so if you don't like the terms that the creator has established, the easy way out is to reject that there's ever a creator. You'll find that, that the honest philosophers have rejected creationism because they know if they accept that God created the world, that they have to accept His law and that they they are under His law. And they they don't want to have any accountability before a holy God. And so therefore, they, they reject creation. They reject what the Scripture says concerning the Lord's coming. And specifically, they mock that the Lord is coming again to judge sin. And that's what you find here Peter mentioning that it doesn't surprise us that those that reject creation also reject the judgment that the creator is going to bring upon uh those that that have rejected the offer of salvation. Now, there's other things in in 2nd Peter chapter 3 that we're going to put off until till next week. I mentioned that uh We're going to deal with a few things concerning the early chapter of Genesis for one more week. And specifically, that the the world itself is screaming. The physical, natural world itself is screaming that something happened. That the world has not continued the same as it always did since the beginning of creation. Since the beginning of time. That there's something that is visible in the natural world that screams to us that something catastrophic happened and peter says that that event was the flood that the lord judged sin already and this is why it's so practical and so pertinent to the rejection of the creator and therefore the rejection of the creator coming to judge sin it's because peter's saying not everything has continued like it always did the lord clearly did something before and that something was the flood. And the flood came because the wickedness of man was great in the earth. The old, in other words, what Peter's saying is the Lord has already judged sin. And the passage here says that these men take that knowledge and that evidence that they see in the world around them and they choose to be ignorant. Now, ignorance is usually something that is the result of no knowledge, Right? If someone's ignorant, they're just, they're just uninformed or they, they just don't have the mental capacity. You know, you get into the realm of quantum physics, okay? I'm ignorant <laughs> because I don't have the mental capacity to, be, to even be able to talk uh, along the lines. I, I was telling some folks this afternoon that I had actually had a, a quote of an abstract that this fellow did, a, a grad student at Harvard, who wasn't a Christian, but was just dealing with the Big Bang Theory, and he pretty much tore it to shreds. He said, it's, it's, it's pretty much fiction. Like, it doesn't even make sense. And the reason why I didn't read it is because the language used, I can hardly pronounce the words. So I'm reading it, and I'm like, you know, my, my, I, can't, I can't relate to the realm in which he is trying to communicate these things. Now, I'm ignorant, when it comes to some of these words and it's not because i'm stupid it's just that i it's so much above where i am i i'm not on that wavelength right peter's saying that's not the case here the information that we see in the world around us is clear it's clear and god made it so to be clear when you see things in geology and see things in the natural world that tell us something catastrophic happened. And then in his word, he clearly states what it was and why it was brought. It's very clear for the average common man to understand. Therefore, the ignorance that is expressed by these scoffers is said to be willful ignorance. Okay? Ignorance is usually something that does not involve the will. It's just a lack of of reception. Here it's a a baffling word. It's a willful ignorance, implying they are exercising their will to, to want to remain ignorant to what the message of the Lord was in the flood. And what Peter is pretty much saying is, the Lord has given you every indication in the natural world. You're choosing to reject that He created the world and that by... Virtue of him being the creator, he's also the judge. And the rejection oftentimes, especially in the realm of the educated, is that they reject Christ as the creator because they reject Christ as the judge. They will not have this man to rule over them. So I turned you to that and I said, we'll spend some more time on that. Uh, next week, as we consider that the old world... It actually says here that the world that then was being overflowed with water. The, the world was different. When, when Noah stepped off the ark, it was a completely different world. Completely different world. Because he even says here, after that, he says, but the heavens, but the heavens and the earth which are now are kept in store. The same way that the old world, which was completely different than the one we live on now, was destroyed by water, and then Noah stepped off into a, onto a new earth, that new earth is also being reserved for destruction because of sin, and this time it'll be by fire. But the rejection of the Creator and how the Lord has judged sin is something that is an ignorance but it's a willful ignorance. And you see that in the in the realm of the educated when they reject Christ as the creator, it isn't just that. It's the theology that gets thrown out along with it. Primarily, they do not want to be answerable to the God of all the earth. And so, 2 Peter chapter 3 is is something we're going to spend some time on next week, but I wanted to say that specifically there are There's reasons why people reject the creation account. It isn't just that they they have all these different theories and they say, nah, I just don't don't buy into that. They understand what it means when God says that He made the world. They understand that. And they, they hate the idea of having a God that holds them accountable for sin. So, in dealing with this, these attacks, and every one of our, our kids are going to be facing these attacks. It's, it's something that, they're, they, that they are faced with from the earliest age. Uh, they need to be reminded, and we need to be reminded, that ultimately the rejection of this doctrine is a hatred of Christ and His, his complete work. It's a complete rejection of Christ. It's a rejection of the gospel. The gospel teaches that Christ is going to come and judge sin. When the Spirit comes, He's going to convince the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. If a man is preaching under the power of the Holy Ghost, he's going to be preaching judgment for sin. The rejection of the Creator often is because they don't want to accept that there's going to be judgment for sin. And so the, the creation account, And understanding that God spoke the world into being is an essential. It's essential. And it's even more essential the more ungodly a society gets. And so I want to leave these verses with you. These are the verses I wanted to to leave with you earlier today and uh, wrap up this section on Christ as the creator. It says there in verse 2 of Hebrews chapter 1 where we've been spending time well, first one says, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. This is where we've been spending the time together. I want to give you the verses in dealing with creation. And if, if you want to write them down, you can. If you want to go back later and listen to, um, to the message and, and put them together, or at least keep some of the main ones in your mind. I think it'll do you good to realize it isn't just, if this isn't a doctrine that is, is randomly touched on, right? We deal with the, the doctrine of head covering or the Lord's Supper. You have the account in the gospel where the Lord instituted it, and then you have the, gosp- the, the account in 1 Corinthians 15, or 1 Corinthians 11, where uh, the apostle Paul commands it, right? And so that's it. But this is a a doctrine that you find throughout the scriptures and it's an essential, it's a foundational doctrine uh, that we need to be uh, familiar with and specifically uh, as it refers to Christ. I think most people, even in evangelical circles, when they talk about creation, they lose the perspective that the one who spoke the world into being was the second person of the Trinity by whom also he made the world's. Christ is the one who spoke the world into being. And so the verses I want to leave with you, I guess seven verses here. Obviously, the first one that's the most obvious is Genesis chapter 1, right? That's all you need. If you believe that this is the Word of God, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 make it very clear. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Uh, God made the world in the beginning. We're not given any other information. I said, I mentioned earlier today that that when it comes to creation, we're, we're not given any. We're not given much information as to what took place before this time. Some some people uh, believe that there are passages later that deal with with Satan's fall. Um, references to Lucifer, things that may have happened. I'm not entirely convinced that that section dealing with Lucifer is actually talking about the devil. Um, There's differences of opinion there. But even if it is, right? And you you have a little bit of a description of what happened when the devil fell into sin or or fell from his estate wherein he was created along with, with all the fallen angels. The amount of information that the Lord gives us is virtually nothing before this. We're not aware of much. We have the passages in the New Testament that talk about that we've been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Things that have happened before the foundation of the world. But what actually existed before Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, we're not told. And you know, I'm okay with that. These things have been given to us for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. If the Lord wanted us to know what took place before man was created, He would have told us. I'm fine with this passage being one of the, the foundation texts in the beginning God created. Created the heaven and the earth. So that goes without saying, Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2 is, is one of the verses. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 for by him, this is Christ, were all things created, that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, <coughs> All things were created by him and for him. OK, Colossians chapter one, verse 16. John, the gospel of John, chapter one, verses one through three. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Very clear. All things were made by Him. By the Word. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Anything that is material. Anything in the natural realm. Anything of substance that we can visibly see was made by Christ. He was in the beginning with the word. with He was with the Father. He was be, in the beginning with God, and all things were made by Him. John, the beginning of John's Gospel, chapter one. Then you have Revelation, chapter four, verse eleven. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Again, the author of creation said to be the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry, upon this verse, said, We have the ground and the reason of their adoration, which is threefold. And the first thing that he mentions here is that he's the creator of all things. The first cause of all things. And none but the creator of all things should be adored. No made thing can be the object of religious worship. Right? The fact that they were bowing down and saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things. No created thing, no made thing, can be the object of religious worship. The same book that we're considering Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. It's often said to be the great faith passage. All the men and heroes of faith. Well, before we get into any of the heroes of faith, the Apostle Paul says, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Right? The things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Then the sixth verse, you keep in mind, is Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 20. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain "...in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things." It sounds a lot like the description that Peter gives in Second Peter chapter 3. The scoffers, these men that come along and say, where's the promise of his coming? Here, Paul says, "...professing themselves to be wise... They became fools. The clear things that we see reveal the invisible things from the creation of the world. John Murray, in commenting on this, said, We must not tone down the teaching of the apostle in this passage. It is a clear declaration to the effect that the visible creation as the handiwork of God makes manifest the invisible perfections of God as its creator, that from the things which are perceptible to the senses, cognition of these invisible perfections is derived, and that thus a clear apprehension of God's perfections may be gained from his observable, his observable handiwork. Things that we would not otherwise know about the Lord, that we can clearly see in the handiwork of creation. It's not a finite cause that the work of creation manifests, but the eternal power and divinity of the Creator. This is but another way of saying that God has left the imprints of His glory upon His handiwork, and this glory is manifest to all. And he goes on to quote verse 19, For God has showed it unto them. God has showed it unto them. The invisible things from the creation of the world are clearly seen. And they reject it, professing themselves to be wise. Right? Don't we hear the same attacks from men today? The science, the science says this, that the universe existed the size of a pinhead. And when it expanded and exploded, the known universe came from the amount of matter that was the size of a pinhead, as we considered a little bit earlier. They have the answer, these wise men who reject the creation of the world. They change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man. And then the last verse I wanted to leave with you is Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17. Ah, Lord God, behold... Thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. There's nothing too hard for thee. But the Lord God is the one that made the heaven and the earth. So you have Jeremiah. You have Genesis. And then you have New Testament passage. And there's other passages as well. But, but these, these seven verses are enough to give the... the the full spectrum of Scripture that emphasizes over and over again the importance of understanding that the worlds were framed by the Word of God and applying it specifically to the passage that we're considering. Why is Christ so important? Right? Why is Christ so special? That's the theme that we're, we're focusing on in Hebrews chapter 1. Well, Christ is special for many reasons, as we're seeing but He's the one that created all things. Now, quite frankly, I don't understand anything about God in a perfect way. When it, when it comes to theology, any theology, I, I'm, I'm, I'm fallen. I'm a sinful man. I'm never going to understand everything about God in a perfect way. But what I need to know In order to be pardoned, accepted as righteous, and therefore viewed by God as a son and fit for glory, and the inheritance that's promised is revealed in this book. And you'll find specifically regarding the origin of things, the scripture does not leave room for questioning and and room for doubt that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Don't be intimidated. Don't be intimidated by the scholars of today who have an agenda. The older I get, right, the older that I get, the more I see through some of the the arguments that learned men raise uh, in society. There's always an agenda. There's always a reason for the promotion of certain things. You know, the old saying, the Latin saying, cui bono, right? Who benefits, right? Things don't happen in the world without someone benefiting from it. There's an agenda that is always trying to be accomplished. Well, the scoffers, they don't just decide to reject Christ as the creator for the sake of saying, I just don't really accept that. There's always an agenda. And they understand that if you can kick creation out from the foundation of the gospel, that you kick out a pillar. You kick out not just that God spoke the world into being, but this is an attack against the person and work of Jesus Christ. The same one who created the worlds is the same one that's going to come one day in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those that... Know not God and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's it's an essential doctrine that we need to hold. And so as we have been considering this, and again, if you haven't been here for the study, we've been spending two or three weeks dealing with creation. I encourage you to go back and and listen to to what we've been considering. Uh, This is uh, a thrill to my heart as I realize that the one who created the world, we were just talking about this today, that you know, John chapter one makes it very clear that no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Right? So no one's seen God the Father at any time. And I, I think that the only connection that God the Father makes with men is, is audible. There's times where he speaks. You think of Christ's baptism, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. But when when God is seen interacting with men. It's always the second person of the Trinity. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you're dealing with creation, the one who spoke the world into being, the one who created man from the dust of the earth, the one who put him in the garden, the voice of the, of the, of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, coming to seek out Adam after he broke the commandment of not eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The one who, as it were, got down on hands and knees and slit the throat of the animal to make, to make skins for Adam and Eve to cover them. The one who gave the promise that the, the, the fruit or the, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. The, all these interactions is Christ. The creation, the redemption shows the, the gospel. You can't just remove creation from the message of the gospel. You can't just set it aside or concede aspects of creation that are clearly set forth in the word of God. Scripture's clear. Christ spoke the world into being, and the same one that spoke the world into being is coming one day to judge men for their sins. So I trust that these thoughts, again, this was mainly finishing up from this morning. Uh, but again, I wanted to make sure i didn't really skim over those verses to give you the scriptures uh, that clearly say that uh, the the origin of the universe is uh, the origin uh, the origin of the universe is is God himself, and that these attacks that come against christ they're always to accomplish an agenda, which is that they don't desire to have God to rule over them. So I trust that these thoughts will encourage you uh, as we've considered them this evening. We're going to sing, as we conclude the service, we're going to, to sing hymn number 600. Hymn number 600, we, we rest on thee. And we'll stand together as we sing hymn number 600.